If you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Lamentations as we begin our series this morning. And before we dive in, I wanted to recount for you the ways in which uh, as a congregation, you're, you're such an encouraging congregation. Some of you don't know this, but for those of you, the, the seven of you who know about football, you know already know this, but... Um, Last year, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were in the Super Bowl, and they played in their home stadium. This year, the Los Angeles Rams are in the Super Bowl, and they're playing in their home stadium. And so one family in this church, I'm not going to say who they are, although they're seated over there, sent me a, what I thought was a news release from the National Football League. It was a fake news release, but I thought it was real. And in the news release, here's what the NFL said. Because we are concerned about the competitive advantage of the last two years teams are playing in their home stadium, and this gives an unfair advantage to the home team, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and this year the Los Angeles Rams, the NFL has decided to move all Super Bowls to the Dallas Cowboys Stadium <laughs> because they probably will never play in that game again. which I think is appropriate to begin the series on Lamentations. <laughs> Walt Kaiser, Old Testament scholar, says of Lamentations, no book of the Bible is more of an orphan book than Lamentations. Rarely, if ever, have interpreters chosen to use this book for a Bible study or an expository series of messages or as a Bible conference textual exposition. Our generation's neglect of this volume has meant that our pastoral work, our caring ministry for believers, and our own ability to find direction in the midst of calamity, pain, and suffering have been seriously truncated and rendered partially or totally ineffective. The book of Lamentations unquestionably is, is a difficult book to read. It, there's not a lot of hope, obviously. There's lots of verses and refrains of, of, of pouring out, uh, you know, the people of God pouring out their hearts before the Lord because of the devastation that has come upon God's people, Israel. When Israel was run over by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And of course, I think part of our problem in, in relating to Lamentations happens to be because for many of us who've grown up in the United States, we've never seen the kinds of devastation in our country as what happened to Israel. It's just not like Sarajevo in the old Yugoslavia, when, remember, that beautiful city was decimated by civil war, or what's happened in Syria or Iraq, or what's happened in many other places through the years. And frankly, because we haven't experienced, largely, this kind of devastation that many other believers around the world face all the time, I think we can sometimes look at the gospel and see the good news of the gospel, and it is good news. But we have a harder time relating to a book like Lamentations. The other interesting thing about the book of Lamentations is it offers a corporate lament 
in lots of, lots of places throughout the book. In other words, God's people lamenting the sin of themselves corporately. Well, we're, we're, we're individualistic. We, we know about individual confession. We do that every week. In fact, we'll do it right before we celebrate communion. But for God's people together to admit together that we have sinned together something I'm not sure we have lots of experience in doing. And that's why we need this book. So what I want to do this morning is to outline for you three reasons why we need to immerse ourselves over the next few weeks in this great book. So here's the first reason we need this book. We need to fully lament over our sin both individually and corporately. We need to, to more fully lament our sin both individually and corporately. What's interesting about the, 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 the book of Lamentations is it's essentially five poems. Four of the five poems have an acrostic Okay, where it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then in the next stanza, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, you know, from Aleph to, to Tav, we would say from A to Z. And I think this is a deliberate design by the, the, those who uh, compose these poems. Is I think what they're trying to explain to us in this horrific situation that God's people Israel finds itself in as Babylon has overrun Jerusalem, as Babylon has destroyed God's temple, and the people are, are being pulled into exile, I think what the author is trying to encourage us is that we need to learn to fully lament from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav. And I think the real temptation for many of us is to short-circuit a lament for our sin. Oh, we will confess our sin quickly, and we will, we will go ahead and confess our sin and then claim you know, Romans 8.1, which we should. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if we do that too quickly, if we truncate true lament for our sin, both individually and corporately, we short-circuit what God is trying to talk, tell us about, what God is trying to teach us. And we undermine the full force of Romans 8.1. This will be very, very important for us to learn to lament more fully over our sin. The reality for many of us, I think, is that we view sin uh, the, the same way we view a traffic ticket. Okay? Nobody got hurt. Nobody's hurt. There's no accident. Oh, I got caught speeding. Fine. I'll pay the fine and move on. But the reality is what Lamentations is going to show us is that sin is far more complex and far more destructive than we really believe. It's devastating. Romans 6.23 says, you know, says basically that, that, that sin leads to death. Sin brings death. For the wages of sin is death. It's destructive, and if we don't lament fully from A to Z, we don't see the destructiveness of, of that. And that's why the book of Lamentations is so important to us. 
But I think there's another reason for this acrostic, this Aleph to Tav, A to Z uh, formulation of, of the poem, of four of the five poems in the Book of Lamentations, is I think it's also trying to help us understand that, there, that lament does have limits. In other words, if, if all we do is lament over our sin and we, 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 we just, you know, become wallowing in, in that lament of our sin, if we just continually rehearse that over and over again, we never get from, you know, we never get to Z, right? We never get to Tav, from Aleph to Tav. We, we, we truncate the grace of God. And that's another danger. And I think it's another reason why the author puts the poem in this acrostic. Now moving forward here, I just want to share with you how did God's people get to the point where this pagan uh, Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys the city, and now has put God's people in exile? How did they get there? Turn to Deuteronomy 28. Let's take a look at sort of the background of how God's people ended up in the situation that they were in. We need to see uh, why Lamentations fully laments for the sin individually and corporately of God's people. So in Deuteronomy 28, God is describing to the nation of Israel uh, the, the blessings for obedience to the covenant before God, but also the curses if they fail to live up to the covenant that God has made with them. Look at verse 1. This is the positive. It says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. In other words, if God's people would obey God, would follow his laws and his commandments, would orient themselves around his vision, his agenda, his, his word, they would be blessed and they would, they would become greater than, 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 and be above all the nations of the earth. But in verse 15, you hear this. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Look at verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And then verse 37. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples, where the Lord will lead you away. The people of God, that God had graciously chosen, he had chosen Abraham to work through Abraham and his descendants and to work through the people of God, Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world, to be a people that oriented themselves around God. But, but God was very clear, if you obey, I will bless you. But if you disobey my word, all these horrific catastrophes will happen to you. And what happened throughout Israel's history, you see this pattern where the people will, will worship God fully and then all of a sudden they'll move away, they'll start worshiping false gods, they'll start disobeying God's word and God brings judgment on the people and then he, then he restores them when they repent. And on and on you see that throughout the Old Testament. 
But by the time you get to the days of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah prophesies to Jerusalem, to Judah, he calls them to return. He calls them to repent. He calls them to say, if you do not repent, if you do not turn back from your sinful ways, you are going to be overrun. Jerusalem will be destroyed. He, he, he pronounces this, this warning to the people of God. And they don't listen. And Babylon comes. And Babylon enters the capital city the people of God, Jerusalem, and decimates it. Tears down the temple, the dwelling place of God, and brings many of the people of God into exile, all because they refused to obey his word, to uphold their responsibilities under the covenant of God. They failed to seek him. They failed to obey him. They failed to take his word seriously. And now everything that God had promised would happen when God's people would disobey has now happened. And now, probably an eyewitness of the destruction of of Jerusalem could be a multiplicity of, of poets who wrote the five poems, and one person compiled them. In the history, a lot of times people believe it is Jeremiah, although Jeremiah is not mentioned in the book of Lamentations. We know that from Second Chronicles that Jeremiah composed a lament for uh, Josiah, the king. So he did write Lamentations, and maybe Jeremiah himself wrote these. It's possible. But what happens is an eyewitness to the destruction of God's people, Jerusalem, and the temple, the dwelling place of God. These poets write about this event in order to memorialize the consequences when God's people fail to do what God has asked them to do. And so what this first poem, all of the poems actually, are designed to help us see our need to fully lament from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav, to lament fully over our sin, both individually and corporately as God's people. Notice what the poet writes about as he describes the lament of the sin of the people of God. He starts out by saying, how lovely sits the city, speaking of Jerusalem, how lovely. She was full of people. But now she's like a widow. She was great among the nations. She was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. The reality is God's people, supposed to be this great nation, being blessed by God, is now a nation that is actually, actually in slavery. And I think it sort of metaphorically describes the people of God are slaves because of their sin. And now they actually become slaves because of God's dealing with them. In verse 2, again, in verses 1 through 11 in this first poem, it's, it's an, an, uh, sort of a narrator or an eyewitnesses looking sort of from the outside in to the uh, suffering of Jerusalem. It says, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. 
All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. What the, the narrator is, is, is suggesting, I think, he's alluding to the fact that the problem with Israel is they, 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 they left their God. And they went after other people. They, 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 they tried to find friends, uh, other nations to trust in rather than trust and obey God. They found other lovers that they pursued. Jeremiah uh, talks about it in, in, in his book about uh, sin is, is actually spiritual adultery. It, it talks about sin as a relational affront to God. He is our God. He's, 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 he's graciously brought us to himself. And, and when we sin, we're committing adultery. We are leaving this God who loves us and cares for us and cherishes us. And finding our hope and comfort in other gods, other nations. Verse 7. And the narrator talks about Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. People of Jerusalem seeing their city destroyed, seeing the temple destroyed, are remembering all of the gracious gifts that God had given them, all of the precious things, the law of God, the temple worship, all of these gracious provisions that God gives them when they realize that God is disciplining them. And as, as God's people, they remember the precious things that they neglected before Babylon came in. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. It's, it's a description of, of, of God's people recognizing the shame of their sin, the shame of their spiritual adultery, the shame of, of, of walking away from their God and walking away from their covenant responsibilities. Verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts, she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comfort. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Notice what he says here. Her uncleanness was in her skirt. She took no thought of her future. What sin does to us is it, 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 it sort of presents itself as a tantalizing sort of a temporary excitement or a temporary um, way to, to, to find hope and to, to find meaning in life. It, sin presents itself as this, this opportunity, but it's short-sighted. She took no thought of her future. God's people had fallen to temptation in, in the present, not understanding the full destructiveness of sin over time. And now with Babylon tearing down the temple, tearing down the city, bringing people out of exile, she now laments her short-sightedness. Verse 13, just very evocative imagery from the poet. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. God's people are stunned. God's people feel the burning uh, weight of God's justice being poured out on them. His discipline being poured out on him. God himself has spread a net for the feet of God's people. And so they grieve. God's people are grieving. They're lamenting. 
They're acknowledging all that was lost because they followed after other gods. I think what's important for us as God's people today, the church, that we take seriously the book of Lamentations, that we don't so quickly confess our sin and move on, but that we sit in it for a while. We reflect on it. We call sin what it is. It's not just, you know, getting a speeding ticket. It's, it's spiritual adultery. It, it, it's short-sighted. It, we, we underestimate the power of sin to, to corrupt us, to, 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 to impact us. The fact of the matter is, when you look at the nature of sin as described in the book of Lamentations, it's, it's not a traffic ticket, a one-time thing, you pay your fine and you move on. It infects everything. It's more like taking a big boulder and throwing it into a small pond, and the ripple effect goes on and on and on. Or like when you get a, a little uh, sort of a crack in your windshield, and it seems like just a little crack, but over time, you got a spider web of cracks over your windshield and you can't see out of it. One of our problems, whether it was the people of God, Israel, or was it the people of God today, the church, is we underestimate the destructive nature of our own individual sin and the destructive nature of the corporate sin of his church. And we must learn to grieve more fully from A to Z. Some of you may have seen this article in the New York Times. David Brooks writes it, kind of talks about the sin in the North American church. Let me read a paragraph. He writes, of course, there's a lot of division across many parts of American society. But for evangelicals who have dedicated their lives to Jesus, the problem is deeper. Christians are supposed to believe in the spiritual unity of the church. While differing over politics and other secondary matters, they are in theory supposed to be unified by their shared first love as brothers and sisters in Christ. Their common devotion is supposed to bring out the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord, say the opening lines of a famous Christian song. In its chorus, it proclaims, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. The world envisioned by that song seems very far away right now in the North American church. The bitter recriminations that have caused some believers to wonder if the whole religion is a crock. There's a lot to lament. And we need to learn how to do that from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav. To sit in it, to reflect on it, to see the destructive nature of it. Well, that's the first reason we need to study this book. There's a second reason we need to study the book as well, though. Is we must learn to move towards God even in the midst of our failures and sin. We need to learn to move towards God in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our grief over that sin. We've got to move towards God, not away from him. I think most of you know this. When you struggle spiritually, it's very easy to start to distance yourself from God, is it not? 
You don't want to read the Bible. That's going to be too convicting. You might not even want to come to church because that will be convicting. You might sort of isolate yourself from other believers because you don't want to have anyone scrutinizing you and you don't want to have to share openly about what you're really struggling with. What is interesting about this poem here is that God's people are under siege. God's people, the temple's been destroyed. People are going into exile. It's a total disaster. And God is doing it because he's bringing the judgment that he promised to on his people. The discipline of God is poured out on God's people. And yet, the poet here is not evading God, he's moving towards God. Notice what it says in verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. And then, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. It's the poet describing this disaster, but going to God and saying, see, look, behold. Going to God and saying, see the, the pain we're in. He's going to God in spite of the fact that God is the one who's sort of allowed and, and brought this devastation. He, they're still going to God. They're still going to God. Why? Because God is the only one who can solve the sin problem of his people. Look at verse 20. He says, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. He's saying that whether you're in the street or whether you're in your house, death has come. It's dangerous to be in the street. It's dangerous to be in your house. And in spite of the fact that God has allowed this to happen because of their sin, I have been very rebellious. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. We have to learn that when we are in a spiritual bad place, we are struggling, we've been rebellious, we haven't listened to his word, we've violated our covenant responsibilities before God. You've got to go to God, even though God may be in the midst of disciplining you, because he's the only hope. And of course, the problem for a lot of us is, is when we, we, we get into these situations, we tend to hide from God. That's what Adam and Adam did when God tried to confront him. We tend to hide from God or we hide from one another or we become so overwhelmed with our sin and our grief, we are paralyzed and yet we need to learn that in our spiritual struggles, we go to God. He may be disciplining us, yes, but he's the only one who can get us a way out. And so you see here in this pain and suffering and lament, the poet is going to God and asking God to see, to look, to understand. We must move towards God in our grief, in our sin, in our struggle. Because he's the only way out. And this is the problem, right? When we fall into sin, that is spiritual adultery. And a lot of times in our sin, and even if God's trying to discipline us, we don't turn to him. We turn to everything else but him to try to help us in our distress. Lastly, we must remember the mercy of God. I'll be honest with you, all five of these poems have much more pain, suffering, and lament 
than a lot of hope. But there is hope in the book, and it's kind of in the middle of the book, and I think the structure of the book where these poems work together, that in the middle of the book, there is this picture of the mercy and grace of God that you have to hold on to when God is dealing with you because of your sin. Turn to Lamentations 3. We'll, we'll work through this passage in a couple of weeks. But in Lamentations 3.21, it says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. When you find yourselves lamenting your individual sin or the sin of the church, either Stonehill or beyond, the church at large, or even by application, you lament the state of our country and the state of our world, and you're lamenting to God, and you're, 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 you're making sure you're fully engaged with this process of, of dealing with the sin and the, and, the, and the brokenness of the world. It is only in that environment that you can actually see the mercy and grace of God clearly. I know we have a couple of uh, budding, uh, you know, amateur astronomers in the church. I know some of you got these really nice telescopes. It may not be as good as the Hubble, but it's good enough. If you want to look at the stars, you don't go to Times Square and set your telescope there. It doesn't work too well. What you want to go to is the darkest piece of sky you, you, you can find. And uh, I was really excited. Uh, I went to Ireland a couple years ago and went out to Dingle, the peninsula Dingle. And it was supposedly in the Western Hemisphere, the darkest sky you'll ever be around. And I was really looking forward to it. The problem is it's in Ireland, so you can never see the sky because of the clouds. But one night this guy sort of opened up, and I, I can tell you, I've never seen, I, I, it was just brilliant. It was incredible. And it's only when you lament for your sin, it's only when you process that from A to Z, from, from Aleph to Tav, it's only when you, you, you properly reflect on that sin and, 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 and the, 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 the destructiveness of your sin and the destructiveness of the sin of the church. It's only against the backdrop of that darkness is the mercy of God seen as clearly as it ought to be seen. And part of the reason we don't get more thrilled with the, the text, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is because we don't see how bad off we are and how bad off the church is. There's a little bit more here. Turn to the end of Lamentations, Lamentations 5. Where he says, why do you forget us forever? Verse 20. Why do you forsake us for so many days? Again, the, 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 the poet is, is calling out to God. Why have you forgotten us, God? Why do you forsake us for so many days? A legitimate question for those who are suffering because of their sin. A, le a legitimate question for the, for, for the people of God. But you've ever heard of that question said by someone else? When Jesus Christ is on the cross 
And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Almost quoting this verse, why have you forsaken me? You realize that when you meditate and, and think about your sin, it drives you to the mercy of God and it drives you to think about the fact that Jesus Christ hung on a cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? To deal with your sin and mine. And of course, that same Jesus, that same God who disciplines God's people by tearing Jerusalem down to the ground is also in Jerusalem to die for our sins. Not simply to die for Israel's sins, but to die for all of our sins to bring us back to him. And when Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem as they are rejecting him, it reminds us that even as God was pouring out his discipline on God's people, God himself was weeping, just like Jesus wept for the city of Jerusalem when he was forsaken by God himself in order that we would not be forsaken through his death and resurrection. And lastly, go back to the text that you heard read already today, Revelation 21. You see, I think if you, if you don't c- compare the rest of the canon uh, to the book of Lamentations, you could end up with uh, not so much hope, but when you see the destruction of God's people, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple where God dwelt at that time, and then you see the verses we've already read. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will, will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Which brings me back to, we need to learn to mourn from A to Z fully, but we also cannot mourn forever. Some of us, we look at the brokenness of the world and we just mourn and we, 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 we cry out to God and we don't understand why all this could be happening in the world, in the church, in our lives. But the reality is evil is not eternal. Evil will not be allowed by God to reign forever. He will reign forever and he will take away death, sin, sickness, and wipe away our tears. And notice Jerusalem destroyed in Lamentations, but now in Revelation, the new Jerusalem, this dwelling place where believers from all ages will be together, worshiping Jesus Christ, free from all of the sin and its destruction that we face on this earth. And part of our lamenting, part of our mourning, part of our grief must include that future New Jerusalem, where evil will be defeated decisively by Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to celebrate communion. I want to lead us in a prayer of confession. I encourage you to take some time and pray along with me for the things that God prompts you to pray about, to confess, to lament. Let's pray together. 
Dear Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we are not the people we ought to be in all kinds of ways, Lord. Lord, we ask and confess and ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which we have committed spiritual adultery and have let other things or other people or other pursuits have become functionally our gods rather than you. Lord, forgive us for the way we have launched into sin because it it temporarily enticed us and we, we had no thought of how that would affect the future, the destruction that would come upon it, Lord. Forgive us for underestimating the effect of our sin, not seeing that its effects are felt by everyone around us in all kinds of ways. Lord, forgive us for not letting your word be the agenda of our life. Lord, forgive us that when we fall into sin, our first move is not to seek you and to call out to you, but rather to anesthetize us through more work or some kind of diversion or pleasure rather than lamenting our sin before you. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we are not the church that we ought to be. For our lack of intentional love for one another. For our inability to handle conflict at times. Biblically, correctly, lovingly, generously. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that while you do and can and say that you will discipline your children, your people today, even the church, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you discipline us in love because you love us and care for us and you want to bring us back to yourself. I thank you, Lord, that in Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were forsaken so that we, even in our sin, if we turn to you in faith and confidence in Christ alone, we will never be forsaken. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and your mercy, for your mercies that are new every morning. In Jesus' name, amen.